When I moved back to Amherst, Nova Scotia after 15 years away, something had changed. Like many other towns, our local businesses and business people have been overwhelmed by large corporations and monopolies. This hurt the spirit of our communities. We lost our autonomy, our self-reliance, and our hope. So join me as I learn more about where we are now, how we got here, and what we can do to take back our communities. I'm Andrew Cameron, and Monopolies Killed My Hometown. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode number 28 of Monopolies Killed My Hometown. I'm Andrew Cameron. Today, we're talking about two different things. First, we're going to go back to the price spreads report and look at the canning industry and the state of it in the 1930s and what was happening there and kind of connect it to today to see if there's similarities as well. And then second, our favorite thing to go back and talk about is the Roger Shaw merger. Uh, There's been a couple of things that have happened recently, announcement from Videotron, and then the competition tribunal awarded costs last week. So I want to talk about those as well. So stick around. The canning industry and Roger Shaw. That's what we're touching on this week. So first, we're going to go back to the price spreads report and look at the canning industry. So this is the industry that takes the actual fruits and vegetables and packages them into tin cans for storage or for shipping. Right, so this industry doesn't grow the fruits or vegetables and doesn't make the tin cans. It just puts them together and ships them. And I mean, this would have been essential in the 1930s. Like most people didn't have uh, freezers. Like freezers weren't common, so you couldn't freeze goods and ship them that way. Uh, and tin cans would let you keep goods like over the summer that you have from the summer through to have over the winter or in off seasons. So basically, in this episode, we're talking about food and the implications of imperfect competition in the canning industry and industries related around food production and distribution and how they impacted food prices. At some point, I will get to the the market study the Competition Bureau did on the grocery retail scene. Currently, I'll get to that at some point. But I think it's just safe to say that the price spreads report found that imperfect competition in the canning industry drove prices up. So I think it's safe to say if that impacted things in the 1930s, and if that's happening again today, it would impact prices and drive prices up as well. Again, we need the Competition Bureau to be able to compel information to find out what's going on. And so actually, I think this section on the canning industry I found brings together so many of the issues we've looked at throughout all these episodes. Mass buyers, shipping costs, secret rebate side deals. This section has it all. So let's get back into it. Let's get down into the actual canning industry. The commission, the Royal Commission on Price Spreads, looked at the two dominant players. We have Canadian Canners Limited and Associated Quality Canners Limited. Plus, there was one other major company that they looked at. It was called King & Rankin Limited. Don't forget, if you go back to the meatpacking episode, the two major meatpackers had invested in the canning industry to be able to more or less increase their bargaining power with the railroads so that they could reduce their shipping costs on their meats. But they were consistently losing money in the canning business, and they had to recoup those lost profits by raising the prices on meat. Don't forget that. That's this context as well. Canadian Canners was first formed in 1893 and grew through consolidation and combination. 
So the commission found Canadian canners had 80 separate canning factories. Associated Quality Canners began in 1928 when it bought four companies. In the 1930s, the two largest canning companies came about from consolidation, not natural growth. And so I'm going to read the commission's initial description of the canning industry. So, quote, Our investigation identified a considerable degree of concentration in this industry, with the first two companies above mentioned dominating the field. It was also demonstrated that the canning industry has grown in this country, neither wisely nor rationally, and has been characterized by overexpansion resulting in surplus capacity, fake capitalization of companies, a fierce struggle on the part of larger companies to maintain and increase their positions at the expense of the smaller, and an equally intense effort on the part of these smaller companies to survive in the face of this struggle. End quote. There's a lot in this statement. Okay, so the surplus capacity is an interesting one. Because the, the commission found that Canadian canners at the end of 1930 had more inventory left over than they sold in the previous year. For example, right? So this is me just picking numbers. If they sold a million dollars in canned goods, Canadian canners had $1.1 million left over in canned goods. For example, like they, they could actually not manufacture any more canned goods for a year and have enough inventory to meet their sales based on the previous year. So the commission found that Canadian canners had a controlling influence in the industry and cut prices to restrict or eliminate competition, right? They found that Canadian canners sold canned tomatoes at below cost over many years. The commission found that these behaviors plus others they discovered while investigating created unstable pricing for canned goods throughout the year. And so the commission found that in the past, the canning companies issued one price list at the beginning of the year and maintained those prices throughout the year. But the oversupply of goods and demands from customers for deals and price breaks prevented the canning companies from maintaining their price lists. So they had to consistently change their price lists throughout the year. And so that's a huge struggle and challenge for smaller retailers. And so I saw it like in the hardware stores over the last few years. In 2020, 2021, when the price of lumber skyrocketed, when it tripled, and I think I touched on this in other episodes as well, but the price was going up consistently and then it was going down and it was all over the place and it fluctuated a huge amount. For the hardware stores, they had no idea if whatever they bought for lumber this week, if they were going to be able to sell it for more or for less next week. They just had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, this is great as the price is going up, but if the price starts going up and then goes down and up and down, smaller retailers can really get in trouble. Mass buyers in the largest retail chains, they have the capitalization and the financial backing to survive these ups and downs. They can also strike quote unquote secret deals with suppliers or they're vertically integrated. And in this case, you know, you have the Irvings growing the lumber, processing the lumber and retailing the lumber. They're all in those steps. So an independent retailer is hard to compete with a vertically integrated company like that. So I want to go back to the report and I want to get into some of the specific deals and market structures that let the Canadian canners abuse the marketplace like they did. Because I can see from my perspective, I see a lot of similarities to the current market structure for groceries. And so again, like I keep saying, hopefully soon the Competition Bureau will be granted the power to investigate, compel information and confirm my suspicions or disprove me if I'm wrong. So back to the 1930s, there were two major manufacturers of the tin cans used in canning. And so the tin can was really the biggest cost of the whole process. The American Can Company, the Canadian district, and the Whittle Can Company were the two major manufacturers of tin cans. So the American Can Company is the largest can producer in the US. 
The American Can Company wanted to expand to Canada, bought a Simcoe-based tin can manufacturing plant from, wait, you'll never guess, the Canadian Canners Company, the largest canning company. So Canadian canners used to manufacture their own cans until they sold the factory to a larger company. But part of this sale involved a commitment from Canadian canners to buy all of their cans from the American Can Company. And the American Can Company would then give the Canadian canners a discount over every other company they sell cans to. Sometimes these agreements can be called favored nation status. So basically this agreement means that Canadian canners will always get the lowest price for cans. If somebody else negotiates a lower price, Canadian canners gets a lower price. When the cost of the can is about 25% of your total cost, this is a huge competitive advantage. The commission found that the Canadian Canners Limited had a 15% price advantage over all other competitors. And don't forget, they had a 15% price advantage and they were still selling their tomatoes below cost. So the commission summed this up as a concession of the worst monopolistic type. And that quote, this advantage has a greater effect on the competitive position of the Canadian canner than that which might be gained by any other exercise of the power that naturally accrues to the dominant manufacturer, end quote. And so the commission said that this unfair agreement makes it so the only way that the small canning companies can compete is by either paying their workers less or paying less for the food they're packing. So basically, people are getting less money. Employees, primary producers, farmers are getting less money because the American Can Company and the Canadian canners have made a side deal. Now, the Associated Quality Canners Company. So they purchase their cans from only one company, the Whittle Can Company. And they do this because they have a controlling ownership interest in the Whittle Can Company. And so the commission found that the Associated Quality Canners doesn't get the same preferential pricing as Canadian canners because they don't need to give themselves such a good deal to secure their own business. They own both companies, so they get the profit in one of the companies or the other. If they sell the cans for less money, the canning company makes more profit and the can manufacturer makes less. If they sell the cans for more money, the canning company makes less money, but the can manufacturer makes more money. But in total, the profits are all the same, like for the whole conglomerate or the whole combination, the profits are all the same. And so this is what happens when dominant companies are vertically integrated. And I think about this, about the debates about uh, grocery pricing, Loblaws, greedflation. And one of the prime defenders for the major grocery stores kept saying, that profit margins haven't changed. What he kept saying was that grocery stores made net profit margins two to 3% previously and are still making a net profit of two to 3%. And I mean, the thing is we don't know. We don't know if they still are or not. We can only rely on the public information. Again, I keep saying, I look forward to when the Competition Bureau can compel information and figure this out. But my point is for a vertically integrated companies such as the Westons, Loblaws, Shoppers, Choice Properties, they can shift their expenses around. Choice properties, their REITs can charge their grocery stores more in rent so the profit margin looks lower in the grocery stores, but the whole organization can still make the same total amount of money. You know, the bread they manufacture, the yellow no frills, the one they put the price freeze on, they can charge more, they can charge less from the manufacturer to the retailer store to shift their profits from one division to another one. And the thing is, this is completely legal and totally above board. They're fine to do this as long as they have a justified reason to do it, but it distorts the true picture of what actually is happening because they get to paint the picture themselves. So if Loblaws wasn't as vertically integrated as it is, and they aren't able to shift costs and prices around, we could actually tell and we could see if the true profit margin from groceries is changing or not. 
As we talk about food prices and grocery inflation, we need the Competition Bureau to be able to compel all the information they need for us to figure out what is going on, right? Because in the market study that the Bureau did on the grocery scene, they state, quote, Of course, in conducting this study, we also spoke to a variety of grocers, both in Canada and internationally. Many grocers were happy to speak with us, and we appreciate their candor and assistance with our study. Others were more reluctant to share information with the Bureau. This did limit our ability to fully answer some questions that are top of mind for Canadians. End quote. I mean, if a company is really doing something nefarious, they're not willingly going to give up that information. Go back to the episodes, the early episodes I did talking about the um, Combines investigators. Think about that episode, the story that Peter C. Newman told about how when they showed up at one CEO's office, like the guy threw the papers into the fire so that they wouldn't know. If at that point, the CEO is going to go to that extent to hide information, they're not willingly going to give it up today. Again, we need to be able to compel it. You want more anti-monopoly news while you're waiting for me to record the next episode? Sign up for the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project newsletter at antimonopoly.ca slash newsletter. The Price Spreads Report Commission found that because of pricing arrangements and ownership structures between the dominant companies that make cans and the companies that operate the canneries, one, the price of cans is kept high and the prices paid to growers has fallen. Two, no other company can get cans for the same price as largest cannery. And three, because the two largest canneries are tied up with the two largest can producing companies, no new companies can enter the industry to act as a competitive break. And again, remember, the largest meatpacking companies got into the canning business and were consistently losing money. So we had two other large companies trying to get in and they weren't a competitive break on the industry. So I'm skeptical when somebody says, well, we just need another big player to come in and they will bring competition to the industry. I don't, I don't think that happens. The commission's final paragraph on the whole canning industry sums up so much for me. They say at the one end, there's a huge international arrangement to control prices and maintain prices. At the other, thousands of growers of fruits and vegetables in this country, helpless in the face of these superimposed corporate organizations, the combined weight of which is crushing them to a level where they can make little or no return for long hours of arduous and productive labor. End quote. When the Competition Bureau is granted the ability to compel information, I think we're going to find out we are in the same or a very similar world. And I don't like living in a world like this, and I want us to do something about it. That's what this series is about. And that's where the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project was founded, was to be an organization fighting for changes and to make the Canadian economy fair for all. Which brings us to the second part, Roger Shaw, which is an example of the amount of work we still have to do. Rogers bought Shaw. The deal closed February or March of this year. Commissioner Boswell did a fantastic job fighting this right from the beginning, even though the system was designed so that he wouldn't fight it. I'm so pleased and proud and so supportive of the work he and his whole team did on fighting this merger. Well done. We need more of that. So he fought the merger. It was eventually approved as long as Shaw sold Freedom Mobile to Quebecor which is the parent company of Videotron, before their merger was closed. The deal was approved by the tribunal December 31st, 2022. Again, remember, we have one year to review mergers. So the clock either started December 31, 2022, which means we have, what, four months left, September, October, November, December, to go back and review this merger. Or, I don't know, maybe the clock starts when the merger actually happened, which was February, so we have an extra two months. But remember, that clock is ticking. August 21st, story published in the Globe and Mail. 
Quebecer Videotron-esque industry minister to intervene in dispute with Rogers over MVNO rates. So basically, as part of the divestiture, Rogers was supposed to give Videotron access to their network at reasonable rates, and now Rogers isn't giving them reasonable rates, and Videotron's got to go back to the federal government to arbitrate or resolve this. So yeah, it's going great. They're doing what they said they were going to do, right? Mm-hmm. And... It's four or six months from now. If this drags out longer than that, which it will, we have no recourse, at least through the Competition Bureau or the Competition Act, to do anything about this. So that was the first thing. Second thing that just came out, we, through the Competition Bureau, have to pay, oh, let's see, almost $13 million. We have to pay $414,000 to Rogers for some of their legal fees, $416,000 to Shaw for some of their legal fees, nine point. $298 million for Rogers and $2.8 million to Shaw for their experts' disbursements and fees. So we lost, and now we have to pay a penalty to Rogers Shaw. Which, don't forget, this was a $26 billion merger, and we have to pay $13 million. Also, the Competition Bureau's annual budget is $60 million. One of the first episodes, I talked about the tribunal and I talked about how like very technocratic this whole process is. And I think it's one of these things that in this technocratic world, sure, it makes sense. But outside of that, you're like, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing it this way? As I was reading it, there were some things that I found very, very, very interesting and very illuminating, right? So basically both the commissioner, the competition bureau and Roger Shaw were able to submit arguments on why they should be paid costs or not. And so Rogers, Rogers and Shaw, they said they should be awarded costs because, quoting from this ruling, they maintain that the commissioner adopted an unnecessarily contentious approach throughout the litigation, which significantly increased the costs that they were required to incur. <laughs> which is baffling. That almost reads like, oh, they asked us too many questions. He 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 asked too much what was going on. He tried to figure out too much what was happening. He just he bugged us. He bothered us. He was asking us too much. He should just let us do what we want. And the commissioner argued that we shouldn't have to pay that much in costs. One, because the commissioner was operating in the public interest in bringing this case. Two, she also take into account the respondent's decision not to concede certain issues at the outset of the hearing, when including concessions that would have simplified the proceeding. Like there was one, Rogers wouldn't concede or wouldn't state about like that day where like the whole network went down, April 2022, when the Rogers network was down. Like they wouldn't specify or state that that actually happened. Right. So there's like these weird things like this. So that that was the arguments. But then the tribunal, like it said, eventually came out and ruled in favor of Roger Shaw. And, you know, we got to cut him a check for 13 million bucks. You know, you and I from our tax dollars. Right. The tribunal actually said, I agree that taken alone, him acting in public interest, this factor weighs in favor of not imposing elevated legal costs against commissioner. But then they say this, quote, this presumes that the commissioner has in fact conducted himself in the public interest throughout the proceeding. As discussed below, this was not the case in the present proceeding. So even the tribunal seems upset with the commissioner for having the audacity to question a $26 billion merger that was going to reconfigure a huge part of the Canadian economy. Then down below, the tribunal also then says that the commissioner behaved unreasonably. So the respondents countered with the assertion that the commissioner unreasonably pursued the initially proposed transaction. Because don't forget, Roger Shaw filed their first merger where Rogers was just going to buy Shaw. And the way it's set up, the Competition Bureau had to 
challenge that merger first. And so they challenged it to block it. Then a few months later, Rogers announced they were going to sell Freedom to Videotron, who wasn't going to give them the highest amount of money. And so they changed the deal after the Competition Bureau had started challenging it. And so the tribunal seems to be pissed at the Competition Bureau or the commissioner for consistently going back to that initial deal. But the commissioner had to appeal that first deal and they couldn't change partway through in their litigation because if they change the deal once, what happens then if Rogers couldn't sell to Videotron and it's got to go to somebody else? In my mind, that just doesn't work. Like if you file a deal and you get sued to block it, you shouldn't be able to just change it midway through and then go, well, he, you know, the competition bureau is looking at the old deal. We're now doing this new deal. It shouldn't work that way. It's you had one deal, cancel that deal and then submit a new deal or litigate the first deal and then divest freedom mobile to make the first deal work. What's happened in my mind anyways, is if I'm a large company, this ruling Roger Shaw freedom has presented the way forward for everything and anything because with the tribunal saying, we're not litigating the first deal anymore. We're now litigating the deal with divesture of Freedom Mobile is they've accepted that the first deal was fine without ever really looking at it, right? So that would be my way around this for anybody and everything. RBC, HSBC, the Competition Bureau is not going to sue to stop that one. They, they put out a report last week. But if I was RBC, HSBC, I would make the deal. Then if it's sued to block it, I would then sell off part of it and say, yeah, there, that meets the criteria. And then if the commissioner, the competition bureau continues to litigate the initial deal, I would just say, well, no, that's not what we're doing anymore. We're doing this other deal over here. Like this seems like we've created a new path for all the largest companies to get through mergers. I'm not a lawyer. So maybe if there is somebody out there that is more experienced, explain to me how that wouldn't work. Back to this ruling from the tribunal. Roger Shaw added that the commissioner adopted an unnecessarily contentious approach throughout the litigation. They asserted that this resulted in an excessive production of over 2.6 million documents, nine days of examination for discovery, 16 contested pretrial motions, the engagement of Bell and Tellus in motions over documents and subpoenas, and the exchange of approximately 45 witness statements and expert reports in a very tight time frame. Okay, a couple things. One, we're talking a $26 billion merger that's going to rework our huge portion of our Canadian economy. Uh, 2.6 million documents doesn't seem enough. Nine days of examinations doesn't seem like it's enough. 16 contested retrial motions doesn't seem like it was enough. Bell and Tellus should be involved, right? They should be sending in data about the market and everything, right? And the other thing is, it was a very tight time frame because the tribunal pushed it all forward so that it could get, be done and resolved in a time so that Rogers and Shaw could meet their deal deadline. This reads to me like Rogers and Shaw complaining that the commissioner was asking too many questions. My understanding is litigation, especially at this level, is contentious. That's the purpose of doing this. They also said that the commissioner's pursuit of the initially proposed transaction was intransigent and should now have consequences. The tribunal says, among other things, the commissioner's refusal to focus on the divestiture resulted in substantial resources having to be devoted by the respondents and the tribunal to do something that had become legally and practically foreclosed. Okay, so this is the other thing the tribunal said. However, on balance, I find that the commissioner engaged in much more serious, unreasonable behavior than did the respondents, and that this behavior had a very significant adverse impact on the time and costs that were associated with the proceeding. 
What strikes me is that the unreasonable behavior of the commissioner was asking too many questions. This was the impression that I had all along is that the system was set up for this merger to proceed through. And the commissioner was supposed to play a role of helping the merger go through. But Commissioner Boswell didn't play that role. He stepped up and asked questions. And he said, no, this doesn't work for individual Canadians in the industry and so many other people. And now the tribunal is telling him, oh, yeah, get back in line. $13 million is a bit of a slap in the face. Like, you know, Rogers, their profits are in the billions of dollars. Why are we paying them $13 million in claims or in costs? But I'm more upset with and bothered by the tribunal's reaction to the commissioner asking questions of a major merger like this. That's what bugs me, that if we have a judicial body that has this mindset and this approach to the Competition Bureau and the Competition Act, we have to do something about this. And that's where, again, legislation can come into play. As you could tell, a thread through this whole episode was getting the Competition Bureau the ability to compel information. That'll be step one that we need so we have a sense of what's going on. I think from here, like I said, CAMP, the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project, like Part of it was created was to bring to light some of these things that are happening behind, not even, not behind closed doors, this is in public, but to make some of these decisions, make some of these rulings open and more accessible to people. Then take that and advocate for smart, impactful changes to the Competition Act, to different laws, different legislations that can help curb monopoly abuses, make the whole Canadian economy more fair for everyone. And even make things make more sense, right? This ruling from the tribunal doesn't make sense to me as just a regular person. I said it before, I'm sure in the technocratic, in the legal world, sure it makes sense. But to me, just looking at it from afar, it just doesn't make sense. And that really bothers me. I kind of want things to make sense. So what can we do about this? One talk to your MPs, let them know that this makes no sense. Ask them, why are we paying Rogers and Shaw $13 million? Two, share this podcast, share this episode, get people talking about monopolies and competition issues. And three, another thing, you can go to antimonopoly.ca slash newsletter, sign up for the newsletter there, and you'll get a lot more information and stay in the loop on what camp's doing. So I think that'll be it for today's episode. Please like and subscribe. Check back in a couple weeks for the next episode. Thank you, everybody. Take care. What are you doing at the small town after the movie shows through? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.